Welcome to the Coach and Doc podcast, hosted by Coach Chris Cutcliffe and Dr. Hunter Taylor. This is the podcast completely devoted to seeking out leaders who elevated their organizations and didn't compromise their principles at the same time. Thank you so much for joining us on the Coach and Doc podcast. Our next guest is Coach Tim Maloney. Coach is the head basketball coach at Dunbar High School in Fort Myers, Florida. But he's been in coaching for over 30 years on the high school, college, and international levels. We're going to ask him about some of the great teams he's worked with, his career. Um, but plain and simple, we want to get some advice from Coach. He's a winner, and he's widely regarded as one of the best life coaches and advisors in the sport. Uh, coach Maloney, welcome to the podcast. Hunter, great to be able to talk to you again. Uh, can't tell you how much I miss you from our days at Baylor and all uh, what we did team-wise uh, at that program and just as friends. So I appreciate being on this phone call with you and this podcast, brother. No doubt. That means a lot that you're here for us. I want to hit the first question because this is so new and I just want to hear your perspective on how was it this past year you got to coach your son for his senior year of high school? What was that like? Well, um, it was an experience that I'm really thankful that I've had. I'm not going to say that it's an experience that you shouldn't be prepped for in some way, shape, or form. Um, <laughs> I was fortunate in, in college to play soccer for a gentleman named Arnie Ramirez, and he coached his son at LIU. And uh, I think from watching their interaction and just how, you know, basically Arnie just made it clear to his son that you're going to have to earn everything. Um, and and additionally, I think just the fact that you got to love your son just as you love every other player on the mm -hmm. court. It provides a unique opportunity just all the way around. So I had great examples. From uh, from somebody like Arnie and and uh, and just thinking of the people that mean the most to me and how they treat their children. So mm -hmm. that, along with the fact that, as you know, I came back from a situation where I had heart surgery um, mm -hmm. two years ago now, and uh, mm -hmm. so that in and of itself to be able to coach a child um, the way we you know the way things have worked out has been great. Just a special time. Yeah. Man, that's awesome, Coach. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to get to talk to you. And I've, I've heard a lot about you from Hunter and uh, looking forward to, to this a whole lot and uh, this conversation. But Hunter and I both have young sons right now. And so kind of following that same line of questioning, what advice would you offer us as mm -hmm. our sons are getting older and starting to get, you know, involved in sports and, and all that good stuff? Got you, Chris. You know, I would say that um... – I think there's five words that you should say. I believe that five to your child as much as possible, um, even when you're coaching them. Uh, and that would mean, you know, when you're on your ride home or something like that. And it's basically, I love watching you play. And you got to let them know that their efforts, you know, regardless of what, you know, they're doing in, in terms of if they're a starter for you or anything else, you need to let them know that you love who they are more than just what they do. And um, you can't get caught up in, you know, especially when you get home, getting too much into the game. You got to be that and mm -hmm. you got to give them a break. Um, I think these times have helped me understand that letting everyone know uh, the whys 
of what you do in coaching are, is so important. And, uh, and that doesn't stop just with the plays you have that aren't your children, you know, your, ch- your children even more so because it's the most significant coaching job that you'll have in your life because you'll have it your entire life. And so, um, but I think the big thing is, you know, and I don't think, you know, there's any, you know, anybody that wouldn't understand this. Um, you guys will be dads that love their children and you won't give them anything. You'll have them earn it. Everybody on the team will see that they earned it. And uh, that by itself, you know, will set an example for your son and for all those people that are playing with them and all those people that are watching. Because you modeled that well, because I remember watching you uh, when I was around you and how much you just love TJ. And so I wish I could have seen how this past year went. Um, I bet that was, I bet that was special. Um, Hunter, I mean, you, you're, you're a part of everything I do, brother. Your DNA is part of my DNA. That's what sports and this life are all about. It's not about championships, about relationships. And, uh, you know, clearly you did a lot to help TJ grow. That's been a village, an extended mm-hmm. village. And uh, I know that you inspired him and taught him and made him feel, you know, just like he was significant, which is what we're all supposed to do for one another. And mm-hmm. uh, I think Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen is a great verse, uh, you know, basically that speaks to that. Uh, iron sharpens iron as one person sharpens another. And uh and that's what this is about. You know, that's what coaching's about. That's what, that's what relationships are about. That's what this existence really is about. Coach, just switch gears a little bit. Uh, you know, yep. this has been an interesting dead period. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, observing social media and whatnot, you know, now they're starting to do the national coaching awards coming in off of mm-hmm. the shortened season. And it's pretty interesting, the fact that uh, Anthony Grant, Dayton's yep. head coach, and then Scott Drew, Baylor's head coach, they both took home. I think they, I think they kind of split just about everything, national and regional coach of the year awards, um, yep. being that they are the best in their profession this year. You yep. worked with both of them, and you're friends yep. with both of them. And yep. I wanted to see if you could offer insight just to how you feel about them, what you take from them, um, whatever you want to add on that. Well, you know, Scott, I'm really happy for because you know and I know what it's like at a school, a private school, Baylor University, um, to become a special place athletically. Uh, and I think about women's basketball and, you know, and obviously men's basketball, but a lot of other sports too. And, you know, knowing Scott personally and having worked with you, you know, at Baylor, we both know what goes into trying to be um, a program that, develops young men and at the same time deals with the business of coaching by being successful on the scoreboard. So when I look at their team this year, I, I really, uh, I watched them play against Florida and um, had a chance to see Scott and everybody and brought TJ with me. And uh, the thing that was special about it is really none of those kids were some high numbered recruit on somebody's list. Um, you had, you know, Freddie Gillespie, who I was a part of uh, recruiting while I was at mm-hmm. Baylor, was a mm-hmm. Division three player. And uh, he reminds me of Stefan Lazmi at UMass. And uh, Stefan, you know, was a Division three player that blossomed and ended up being a 
NBA draft pick and having an unbelievable clear. And now I look at Freddie and again, somebody else that, you know, basically a blue collar worker and mm-hmm. about the right things. Talks about his faith sincerely and humbly um, before he ever accepts any type of recognition for what happens into a game, which he immediately then uses to bless everybody else on his team, on the staff, everything else. So for me, I just loved watching the way those young guys really came together. Mark Vital, the way he impacted the games. Uh, there was one game he was hurt and he was on the bench and I just watched him put his hands around guys. And yeah, yeah. I, I, that, that stuff's moving. I mean, yeah. and that just doesn't happen. You know, when that happens, you know, I, I think about the tie beards and, um, you know, the coach, you know, all the coaches, Coach Jacobs, you know, uh, all of the coaches, just what they did. You know, Scott basically put something special together. Um, coach Tang, uh, Alvin, I mean, you just got a, you got a group of men that I'm really happy for that did something. Pastor Weibel. Um, you know, all of, everybody just that's involved with that program, I think it's special. And Anthony, I'm just happy for because Anthony and I were assistants at Florida. And I've known Anthony for a long time. Uh, you know, it was probably back in 95 or 94 that we met. And uh, I don't know that there's anybody that, and I've said this for a long time, but, you know, him and Frank Martin worked together at uh, Miami Senior for um, Shaky Rodriguez, and I don't mm-hmm. know that any program, basketball program, football, any program had you know had what they had in terms of competitiveness, championships, loyalty, and uh, so the fact that I got to know Anthony the way I did, and then we happened to work together, uh, led mm-hmm. to just a very close relationship. You know, so much so that he um, this past year <laughs> showed up at uh, my door uh, to my wife. He flew in. He was going to go to an A-10 meeting, I guess, in Naples, but he flew into Southwest Florida, into Fort Myers, and he talked my wife into not letting me know, and he was, you know, sat on the couch, and he waited for me to get home, and there he is, he surprised me, so I love Anthony, and uh, the fact that he was at Alabama, VCU, at VCU, he just, you know, he just had an unbelievable way of bringing people together, I think he did the same at Alabama, at Alabama, I believe the year before he left that program, um, he sat out a number of guys that were all starters because he felt that from an integrity and character standpoint, they weren't taking care of what they needed to. I remember and he didn't, and, and I just thought that was, that should have been so loud to every AD or any administrator or any president or any parent um, and it, or any player that, that it wasn't going to be about the win is not, you know, seen just on the scoreboard. We have to win all the way around. And that it does matter how you get there. The end of the day comments and any means necessary are not for an Anthony Grant. Bottom line is he's going to develop men. He's going to make sure they have character. He's used to that at every place he's been from Miami Senior to Stetson to, to Marshall to the University of Florida, winning championships, being close with Billy, VCU, Alabama, and then going into, you know, Oklahoma and coaching with the Thunder. And now at his alma mater, you know, basically where he probably always thought it'd be a great place to be. I mean, I think they ended the year top three in the country. And mm-hmm. uh, can you imagine? I mean, that's even just hard to fathom. 
But if I, I almost think that there should be books written about guys like Anthony really fast and wow. Scott Drew. There should be a lot of attention paid to how they go about their business. And I definitely think there should be a book about these young grad assistants that are getting their PhDs wow. that are kind enough to remember the coaches they worked <laughs> with, like uh, Hunter <laughs> Taylor. I'll tell you that. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your head coaching experience. So how old were you when you got your first head coaching job? First one, I was 23 turning 24, um, and it was at New York University. Um, I had just graduated college a year earlier, and the head soccer coach had left to coach in the NSAL, which was the, a, you know, the, like the NBA of soccer in America. Uh, with some great teams and great players. And the NYU, um, one of the directors of, of athletics, uh, Mike Musio, um, had met me during the year at Catholic School League basketball games because I was you know, coaching at the time as an assistant um, you know, with some teams, so literally just coming in and, and talking to players and just you know, more like somebody that would come in just to inspire and so he offered me my first official coaching job by saying, I want you to be the head coach of our soccer program, and I want you to teach uh, in, our, um, in our grad program. Are you interested? And I was more than interested. There were no cell phones in the day. I said, Coach Musio, I'd love to sit down and talk to you about it. Can we do this on Monday? Absolutely, Tim. And long and short of it, went in, took the job, and, uh, and learned really quickly what it was like to to lead people, even a number of people that were older than me. Well, can you talk about that a little bit, being the head coach that young? You know, what did you learn from, from that? Because that is, you know, I would think pretty unusual to, to get that first head coaching job at 23. Yeah, I think the biggest thing was, for me, I had played, uh, I had four varsity letters in college in four different sports, so basketball, NCAA basketball, baseball, ran cross country one year when my soccer coach left after my junior year to take Long Island University and then baseball. And so I've had a lot of coaches that inspired me, that worked with me. So I felt like I had, I had a lot of preparation. I took a coaching class with Jimmy Valvano in 79 when he was at Iona, um, listened to him speak. And if anybody has knows basketball or doesn't know basketball, you can you can learn a lot from listening to him speak at the, uh, when he was talking about his battle with cancer and the SBs and then the form, you know, formulation of the Jimmy V Foundation fighting cancer. Uh, but I heard that three times a week. And uh, he just was a very consistent, inspirational, uh, genuine, uh, giving people, other people credit like his mom and dad person that I've ever met and I was I was and that that's the tale of the tape with all the coaches that I had in college. Johnny Ramirez, who was a part of running Pelé soccer camp. I mean these were like the I was around the best of the best of people. And so I think that along with my upbringing, my mom and dad, you know, helped me understand two things. One, that if you're gonna lead, um you have to a, know the content of what you want to give people teaching-wise because you do two different things as a coach. You teach the game and you coach the players, coach the person. 
So my thing was relationships were going to come, you know, before anything, but also as a teacher, I had to know specifically what I wanted to do on the field and then allow that, you know, to be something that people readily saw in terms of my enthusiasm, my conviction. And, um, and so I was modeled for me. The only thing that I could say you learn when you're young is that when you don't know the answer to a question that a player is, is giving you, uh, don't shut them up. You know, don't, uh, well, you know, get on the line right now. I didn't ask you to talk. You know, you don't need to do anything other than say, you know what, that's a great question. Let me think about that. Let me, let me just think about how we're going to address that. But I appreciate you saying that. Okay, guys, let's get back to it. Let's get to the line. And just honor your players by, you know, being someone that's honest. Because they smell it. They smell if you're dishonest. They smell if you are honest. Um, I think sincerity is really, really, to me, uh, you showing that you care more about them and their shine than you care about your own shine. I think that's not everybody's MO. Uh, but when you have those components, uh, you know, you might get one or two type of kids. You'll get one kid that's saying to themselves, you know what, man, I, that's a sincere coach. He's real. I mean, I could trust him. I could really, really, I could really listen to him. I could, I could be coached by him. And then another kid might say, yeah, he's sincere. You know, I can work that guy. And the good news is if you have been around people that are great coaches, you're going to be able to coach both of those kids. Because you're gonna you're gonna keep everybody accountable, and uh, you're gonna love everybody up, and eventually, I think things kind of show out. I think you end up uh, you, the success ends up being if the focus isn't the scoreboard and it's the heartboard first. Um, they see that's what you have, and you can you can build some special special situations. Coach, we always try to highlight a coach uh, from someone we interview who people, more people need to know about them. Um, mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask you about uh, mm -hmm. who is Frank Morris and why mm -hmm. do people need to know about him? Well, Frank Morris was a coach that was from St. Agnes High School in Long Island. And St. Agnes High School um, had a basketball program, football program. Mr. Morris was the head football coach, and he had just gotten the athletic director job at St. Agnes. And he was kind of handed the basketball job because people that were giving him the basketball job said he's going to do terrible in basketball and will be able to fire him because they didn't like that he got the AD job. But, for, you know, for the next 24 years, Mr. Morris' teams either came in first or second in the CHSA. He had a style of play that was different than everybody else's. Um, it was a running and pressing style, which is real pressure basketball. You know, those that just press the basketball, but don't push the basketball. Don't really showcase the type of pressure basketball that Mr. Morris basically showed in the teams that he coached. And, uh, and you could just tell that clearly if you, if you don't push the ball back at somebody, you're not pressuring them to play defense. And Coach Morris was just, a, he was an innovator. He, he took a lacrosse offense by clearing the ball sideline. Um, and he was very simple with what he thought, but his simplicity, in my opinion, uh, was genius. Uh, I used to say, why, why do these guys, why do so many teams dribble the ball up the middle of the floor and they take 10 and 15 dribbles, they try to make 10 passes? My kids can't make three passes. And why would we dribble the ball into the defense? Because the defense congregates to the middle of the floor. 
And he would say, and, and, and he would say things like the ball can't be luggage. Uh, he would really teach over and over again, the advanced path. Uh, but maybe just really quick, one of the things that I loved about him most was the way he could capture and connect with kids. So the first day of practice, I heard about this from him himself. His first day of practice gets everybody together for a time coaching. And he says, uh, he's looking at everybody, and he goes, uh, so, uh, you know, you guys got to understand something, you know. 85% of this is you guys. You know, coaching's 15%. Yeah, really. Okay. And he went and sat in the stands. <laughs> and when he went and sat in the stands, kids were all looking at each other like, you know, well, what do we do? And a couple of minutes go by, and the kid looks at somebody. They're afraid to say anything to Mr. Morris. He's just sitting there. And they go to the ball rack, get a couple of balls, take layups, guys. And so seven minutes later, they're taking layups with their right hands. And a couple of minutes after that, they switch. And now we're going into 14, 15 minutes. And you, you can see they're like, gee, what do we do? So Mr. Morris walks out to the middle of the court, calls them in. They all sprint in real fast. And he goes, uh, fellas, you got to remember, it's an important 15%. <laughs> and, uh, and then he told them, you know, listen, great coaches, he said, uh, right 85% of the time. He goes, and I'm probably right, he goes, 84% of the time because, you know, I'm learning the game of basketball. I'm putting my own thoughts into it, he goes. But uh, but I want you to know, uh, you know, that's the truth, you know, like 84% of the time. But to you guys, I'm 100% right 100% <laughs> of the time. You get it? And uh, and I just, I never met anyone like him. The greats of the game, UB Brown, to me, is probably one of the all-time greats, uh, would speak of him as a coach that had no peers in terms of having his teams prepared. And I know that to be true. Um, UB said that in the latter 90s and in the, in the 2000s when I would meet him at different speaking events. And... Um, at my school, he came and spoke at our school. He always talked about Mr. Morris that way. And uh, and when he was a Nick coach in the 80s, I remember Mr. Morris leaving the gym and, and UB Brown running over. It was at Hofstra University, the, the Knicks practice when he was, when the UB was coaching the Knicks. And he went and grabbed Mr. Morris, brought him on the court. So I knew he always had an esteem for him. But I think people of today would know the name Billy Donovan. Billy Donovan was coached by Frank Morris. And, uh, and if you, anybody Googled Frank Morris or Billy Donovan, I'm pretty sure that the comments would be very significant from Billy. I think people used to call Florida basketball Billy Ball. And, uh, and I think the truth is Billy Donovan referred it to as Frank Morris Ball, which is a heck of a compliment. And uh, Coach Morris is just, he was second to none. Uh, one, the great part about him is, too, that he – um, it was who you were as a person that mattered most to me. He was going to create champions. It was a, one of his players recently lost a battle to ALS. But I got a message from one of, uh, one of the guys that was, you know, very close to that athlete and uh, talking about their times at the house as this guy was battling the, you know, that disease. And he said, hey, if I can make it through Frank Morris practice, this thing's cake. And uh, just the fact that they would get laughter and they would talk about Mr. Morris the way they did. Um, just nobody liked him, Hunter. I know you've heard me talk about him, but nobody liked him.
Yeah, that's good stuff, Coach. <clears throat> um, all right, so I wanted to ask you, I've, I've read about, you know, your teams at Mariner High School. Uh, mm -hmm. Now you're back in Florida at Dunbar High School mm -hmm. uh, after a lot of time mm -hmm. in, in college ball. So I wanted to see if there were any changes to your philosophies in a couple of areas um, after returning to, mm -hmm. to high school. Uh, first, mm -hmm. just talk about your process for establishing your program. Any any changes from, mm -hmm. uh, you know, from before? No. I mean, there's a there's a theme that stays strong and uh, and it's we, not me. Um, and that means that, you know, every player on the team has to buy into that. So the process of teaching players in terms of being about the we and not themselves, you know, initiates itself with you as the head coach and, and all the people that coach with you. So that's, you know, a staple that has to happen. And, um, and that's never changed. The style of play hasn't changed. I know that people talk about kids today and they say how the kids of today are a lot different than, you know, they were a time ago. I think it's the people around kids that are a lot different. And I think, you know, the telephone, you know, in your pocket, uh, social media, you know, face-to-face -face communication, learning, uh, learning about people from body language to, to picking up things that matter relationship-wise, just the intimacy of talking to somebody one-on-one. -on -one is lost for kids so that that's changed the climate but it's it's not like i think kids don't go through puberty identity crises or need somebody to point them in the right direction i think the onus is on um, adults whether you're administration whether you're an educator you know whoever you are to be about those kids you know be about their shine not your own shine and uh and to enlist accountability don't you know don't put kids in situations that are going to hurt them by allowing them to make excuses or, or, or have them lose the whole premise behind what specifically for me basketball was made for. Naismith created basketball so that people would learn Christian morals and integrity and character, you know, through a game, learn how to get along with people, how to play with people, how to, you know, all of those things. And I think that uh, that to me, needs to stay the same. To some extent, I think the one thing I've seen, Chris, is sometimes players and parents think it's a contract you have with the, with the players. You know, that there's some kind of a, an agreement that goes on between a player and a coach. That's crazy. There's one thing that a player needs to understand more than anything, and that's obedience. And there's another thing that a coach needs to understand, and that is obedience. If you're working for a, a principal or an athletic director that is about the growth of your student athletes, which I would hope that everybody that's in the top rung of things is, then that's what you're about. And you'll have somebody that will keep you accountable um, to all of those goals and all of the things that really athletics merit. So it's really not an agreement. It's not like uh, – you know, somebody, uh, you know, too many kids, I think, too many coaches recruit in high school uh, when they're not supposed to. And the bottom line is when you do that, um, that's what somebody thinks is going to be agreement or there's contracts or you promised me. That's not something I ever partook in. Um, in New York City, when I, uh, when at 25, I got the head coach at Martin Luther High School or whether it was 
at Mariner High School and certainly at Dumbo. We don't, that, it's not about recruiting. It's about whoever shows up in that gym, who's ever in your school, your job is to make them better. And, to, and it starts by making them better people. It's not cliche, it's real. Because when you're a good person, you listen. When you're a, a dutiful you know, athlete, you're coachable. And when you're someone that you know, really recognizes that the leadership is not trying to motivate you, you know, like give you a fish. They're trying to teach you to fish, inspiring you, light something up inside you that they take hold of it and they become we not me people. And I think when that happens, you know, something really impactful happens. And so that's that's the whole focus. It hasn't changed. I do think that I talk about why more now, you know, for kids and my ears have become better because with time, hopefully, you know, you, you never arrive. But with time, I've had more athletes, more situations uh, from prosperity to adversity to, to just more relationships with kids that maybe have gone on to make a living at the highest level in the NBA or overseas and, uh, and been around coaches and people like Hunter. So I have more that I can give. Um, so I just, you know, I know for myself, I want to make sure that I reach them first so that I can give them what other people gave me. Coach, I couldn't agree more. I think there's something special about uh, high school sports and, and playing with the guys that you grow up with in your community. And uh, I, I just think that there's definitely something special and impactful about that. Um, so, hey, you mentioned yes. the importance of, of the guys around you, you know, kind of sharing that mm -hmm. vision. You talked about it starting with the head coach, but also your staff. So mm -hmm. I was going to ask you yeah. kind of two things with the staff. Number one, like, you know, what do you look for uh, in hiring a staff? Uh, and number two, mm -hmm. once you bring a new person in, um, do you have mm -hmm. you know a specific process you use to to kind of indoctrinate a new staff member uh, into mm -hmm. your into your program? Well, first, I just want to piggyback on what you said. I'm with you at the high school level because it hasn't been uh, in a situation that's been so polluted. You know, once people, I don't think the game basketball was made to I know it wasn't made by Naismith to make money. So the amount of money that has gone into now the whole shebang and especially, you know, at, at every level, you know, the college level, even high school level now has polluted it. But you can get kids early and I think you can have an impact in college. I really believe Hunter did and I believe that I was a part of that too. Um, you can have impact. But at this early stage, I just like that, you know, you can get them hopefully before the circus gets started because there's, there's definitely been a circus uh, as of late in high school athletics uh, but you don't have to be a clown in the circus um the second part to what you're asking me tell me specifically what you're asking so you know number one what do you look for uh, hiring new mm -hmm. staff members and number two once you bring somebody new on board um, do you have a process mm -hmm. you use to indoctrinate them and you know into your program your way of doing things mm -hmm. Gotcha. Well, I'm going to tell you, I was just watching Gino Ariemo and Kim Mulkey go at it here on television. They're doing a rerun of the Baylor against UConn game at UConn. And, uh, and I love Kim Mulkey. She just, uh, she coach any sport, any level, any gender. She, she's great. And, uh, but every time I see Gino, it, it reminds me, um, of a number of kids that were from Christ the King High School that went on to play for him. And a comment that he made about, you know, who he hires. 
and he said, and he, and it was very simple. And I agree with him. He hires very good people. Because I look for a person, a very good, I want great people, a great person. I don't care what they know about basketball. Because what we could take care of that. But I want great people. And I'm in that camp because what that says is, you know, and, and I, I believe that for all of the time I've been around any game, that if you find people that are really enthusiastic, that are really selfless, that are totally committed to other people's shines, that can take any specific responsibility that you give them, and you, you make that, and, and they have both love and loyalty, which need to go hand in hand. And they're truthful, you know, to the, to the journey. Um, these are people that you want around you. You know, what you need to know about basketball, I mean, Coach uh, Morris is somebody that, you know, was basically, as I said, he took a lacrosse offense. There are a lot of people that, you know, debated, you know, how he ran things, how he did things. Um, but those were people that, you know, usually were losing and had a different style and were probably upset that most of the kids at at their own schools were leaving to go to Mr. Morris's school because they wanted to run and press and shoot the ball and have a level of freedom. And uh, and so you want great people. And, it, and, and that's it. You know, I, I mean, I would hope that if Hunter ever takes a job at some um, high school or a college or whatever and, and guys like you and me, Chris, are available, that he'd call us up. Um, I just want to be around great people, and I want that for our players all the time. And uh, and we're blessed to have had that happen. The person that got me involved with the Dunbar job was first Ernest Grant. You know, I I coached Ernest from from '94 to '96, and always stayed close with him. He was a football player in college, and then played for the Tampa Bay Bucks. But he was a great basketball player, and he was from this area, specific area, young man of color that. Didn't have a dad uh, readily available to him, but had a mom and a grandmother that went through the roof. Great brothers and sisters, and one of my favorite humans of all time. Hunter will tell you he visited Baylor a number of times just to to see me. He was somebody that came to the hospital when I had heart surgery, and uh, and I didn't give him the address, and I didn't want him coming. He just found a way to to get that through my wife. So he was one of the assistants, you know, and I don't want to call him assistant. He was one of and coaches, we're all coaching together. Ryan Hersick, who played for me and was a captain. Ken Burns, who was uh, coached with me at Mariner. Um, guys like Robinson Tismi, Freddie Atkins um, that came around. These are all guys from the, the 90s. And now Brad Branson, Coach Giles, uh, Brandon Jackson, uh, Brandon Wiggins. I mean, we had uh, Dwayne Jackson. We just had all of these young guys um, and Coach Branson and myself and Ken Burns that – you know, just managed to come together. It, it, it mesmerizes me. And the principal at our school is, uh, you know, somebody I knew back, you know, in Mariner days, uh, Carl Burnside. And Carl's commitment, focus, along with Aubrey Daniels, uh, Andre McGill, who used to be the coach here. I mean, these, these men all were the reason I came here. God definitely had a great plan. So you got to find people that are great people. And I think great things happen. When, when that takes place. And it's not necessarily the scoreboard, but it's interesting in my journey. It has eventually always led to, the, to greatness on the scoreboard. Coach, Chris, Chris asked you about um, your philosophies when you were the head coach, but you've mm -hmm. also had this 
fascinating part of your career where you're known as being like one of the most effective advisors in the country to head coaches like Coach Donovan or Travis Ford or Coach Drew, just to name a few. I mean, there are several others. Um, mm-hmm. And I was just curious about if you could kind of enlighten us on what your approach was mm-hmm. always going in mm-hmm. under this role well, he, mm-hmm. to add value and, and help the head coach. You hit that the, the, the phrase on the nose. Um, Travis Ford is somebody I absolutely love. There is no – he is in the same camp. Anthony Frank, I mean, Billy, he's just a phenomenal coach. Teaming up with him at EKU and UMass, I've been blessed. But can you imagine, close to this very day, one of the first guys that as soon as he heard I had any issue with my heart, he was, you know, he was there to make sure I was good. You know, my family was good. Donnie Jones, the same thing. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, you, what was the full part of that question? I just got lost on talking about Travis. Yeah. Like, what was your approach when, when oh, I got it. asked yeah. you to come be his yep. associate head coach? Or yep. Coach Donovan so Yep. I, I Go played ahead. with a guy, John Imperator, who played at Archbishop Malloy High School, and then we teamed up at Manhattanville uh, and, and off, in, in a game against the Republic of China-Taiwan. But John was one of the best basketball players. I mean, he was strong, you know, six-foot-one, just strong body, uh, great player, smart. I mean, he played for Jack Kern, who's a Hall of Famer, you know, Archbishop Malloy, which has, you know, so many great players, from Kenny Anderson, Kenny um, Smith, to just so many players. And John is a ultimately an unbelievable, successful person in real estate and building buildings and he's got like 80 and 90 buildings in Greenpoint Brooklyn and around Manhattan he's just a success beyond success uh in his field and I remembered it was in the mid 80s and he was taking me to go work out because we played one-on-one and played hoops all the time together and I asked him I said John when did you know you were a success and he said to me to me he goes I knew I was a success when I was three million dollars in debt and the funny thing is when he said it, I, I got it. Because I said, John, so somebody knows that you're good for that three mil. And he smiled. And I said, what would be the thing that you would tell myself or anybody else, you know, what's the difference in being successful in your field? He goes, Timmy, wherever you go, add value. Be a person that adds value. So. For me, I happened to be um, with Billy, somebody that, you know, he knew a time ago when he was a junior in high school. And he was great with everybody. He was a question asker. He was was the antithesis of looking for the right way to do things. Now, I, I would believe that, I don't know that anybody's done a better job in the in college basketball or in the NBA, but but definitely, I think that opportunity really helped me um, because he trusted me. I think Travis trusted me. I think uh, Coach Tim Cohane, who I coached for first at the University at Buffalo, um, really gave me confidence just, you know, with telling me that he valued the things that I was saying. So the more people that tell you, I, I'm one of those that believes, you know, 
the thing that helps you believe in yourself is if somebody actually, you know, trips that wire early for you. So yeah. if somebody believes in you first, that certainly allows for, you know, a good steamroll to happen or, uh, you know, just your growth. So I enjoy doing that for others. And I've just basically, I've had a lot of years with this game and uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about 10,000 hours. Well, I've been doing it since the early eighties and um, in all kinds of situations from high school to overseas to, you know, to six NBA, six NCAA division one teams to, all of the experiences I've had as a player, I mean, it, it, there's stuff in there that you can share, not that, that I developed or I learned, but that I watched take place and that other people communicated to me. I mean, like I said, Ani Ramirez, who coached Long Island University, uh, head soccer coach, brought Pelé here, the Pelé soccer camp at Manhattanville College. He asked me to be involved. I meet Professor Julio Mazzane, his family, his daughter, who I'm close with to this day, I mean, these, Professor Mize was like Pelé's father. Uh, today, Zoka, Pelé's brother, passed away. And uh, it was a tough day. And I talked to Coach Ramirez today. Again, relationships, right? And just thinking, recalling what unbelievable people these are. What an unbelievable person Zoka was. Humility that he had. He ended up coaching the women's team at Manhattanville College after he worked the camp with his brother. I mean, this is a, this is really the story of of way, where foundations come from. You know, I, Pele wasn't just a good athlete, you know, in terms of, or a well-known athlete like many in the NBA um, that everybody think are so infamous. We're talking about somebody that throughout the world, he was the athlete of the 20th century. I mean, he was mm-hmm. athlete of, he's, he changed everything in, in soccer from the standpoint of he was tax-free in Brazil. He was considered a natural resource in every social studies book. This guy was right next door to me. This guy spun a basketball on his finger. He would call me his friend. He would, you know, five years after working camp, he'd see me in the city at his office. He'd stop a meeting he'd have, you know, with somebody that I think was Pony, talking about millions of dollars in endorsements. And he'd walk out and he'd hug me and say, Tim, my friend, wait here, don't go anywhere. I mean, these are the, this is the priceless stuff that, you know, uh, in other words, that he taught me that, you know, famous phony. Somebody else is making money off the people that are famous more than the people that are famous. Somebody is using you for the most part, you know, and, and then you can get caught in the prosperity thought process that, you know, well, I'm deserve this, or this is commonplace, or this is really me. And you can lose who you are. And uh, the great thing was none of those people ever did. And so I think that's what I try to give people is just and I attribute that to my faith walk. I believe that God clearly just has helped me see throughout my life, especially when I accepted Christ in 84, that there is a way and a to live your life. And it was done over 2,000 years ago. And if you watch people and listen to people that have brand marks of Jesus, you will find every answer and everything that you need to basically live the life correctly. And that's, that's where really we, not me, comes from, philosophy. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to get that's on right. a soapbox here. No, that's perfect. That's, that's awesome, Coach. Um, so I've heard from Hunter before about how passionate you are about warning against prosperity, <clears throat> excuse me, prosperity and what that can do to a team. Um, if you would, I'd love for you to talk about this for our listeners. Yeah. Well, prosperity in anything not just hurts teams, it 
it's, it's damaging. It's not in and of itself by itself bad. It's not like people say to themselves, let me go into this game and not win. I mean, you're, the Bible tells us to run the race in such a way as to win the prize, but it really speaks to run the race in such a way as to win the prize. It doesn't say go and win the prize. But when you do win, like I said, it's, um, there's an issue. There's issues that are invisible that come into play. Um, you will have maybe false friends that come around, people, again, that have different agendas. Your ego can, you know, unfortunately be fed things that really aren't true, that it's about you. And the manipulation in prosperity is greater because there's the idea that there's greater reward for those that are coming around you to try to take from you rather than give to you. So prosperity to me is, it brings with it a host of things that unless you've experienced prosperity at the highest levels of what you do, that, um, that otherwise you wouldn't know. You know, Dave Chappelle is a great, you know, uh, is a great example. A number of years back, this was a comedian that had his own show and uh, was really, really, you know, in, from a prosperity standpoint, doing exceedingly well. Eddie Murphy, who's my age, and from close to where I grew up in Long Island, you know, was somebody that everybody, you know, I think in the comedy world would recognize as just a, a juggernaut, if not one of the greats of all time. And Chappelle rose to, to really uh, a very quick, loud level, you know, the way Eddie did. And, um, and all of a sudden you hear that Dave Chappelle's turning down $50 million to not sign a contract to continue his show. And the media uh, is being fed that something's wrong with him. He's a little insane. Uh, he's, he went to Africa. How do you turn down $50 million? I mean, the whole narrative was that he was insane that I guess money is everything. How could you turn that down? And and he has to be crazy. Well, when when you call somebody crazy, that just, like, it makes them dismissive. Like, that's it. That's the problem. And, you know, no one really heard all of the reasons until maybe two years later, even even later than that, when he came back. And he said some things about prosperity, uh, like the people that had spoken to him about you know, running his show, you know, there was a scene that they wanted to do where he was to dress up like a woman, lipstick, and and basically have this, they, they choreographed a scene and they thought it'd be so funny. And he goes, uh, you know, I don't want to do that. And it went through like the chain of command, like he said no to three different people. And finally, one of the, you know, the, one of the people, I guess that's the last honcho that you, that you meet with. Um, says, come on, Dave, you know, this, you'll do it. And he goes, listen, man, I'm funnier than that. I'm not dressing up as, you know, a man of color, just going to dress up as a woman. You know, that's been done before and it's not right. It's kind of loud when you hear stuff like that. I don't think that's, I don't think that's fake news, what Chappelle said. I took a look at his face as he was explaining it. And he talked about people like Mariah Carey. Uh, do you think that Mariah Carey is, you know, a stupid person. You don't get to be as successful in the industry as she was or Martin Lawrence, you know, running in the streets of LA saying they're coming to get me and he's hardly got any clothes on. Um, Mariah Carey on TV looking drunk and out of it. You know, do you think these old people are just stupid people? 
You know, he goes, maybe Hollywood's a little messed up. Use a different word. So that kind of, that's just the tip of it for me, you know, for people that aren't in athletics, look at it that way. And I, I certainly think athletics, it is uh, a problem prosperity because you get a false sense of security. You get a false sense that, you know, that winning is ultimately the most important thing. And, and, uh, and you don't define what winning is. It's how you go about winning. It's not just that you win. Um, how you go about winning. Who you become. Who the people around you become with winning. Um, because, listen, if I asked you, Hunter, today in 2015, who won the NCAA championship? Would you know? Or, or in uh, 2006, who won the NCAA championship men's basketball? You know, I, I, the only reason why I know 2006 because it was Billy Donovan at University of Florida, <laughs> and they sent me an, and they sent me a national championship ring. So everybody. I know about yeah, 2006 because I was. Uh, <laughs> I know about that when I was at Tennessee uh, as a student cheering against <laughs> them in the student section <laughs> every time uh, they came up and uh, wondering, well, let me tell you, wondering you why we best, couldn't. You got couldn't the come best out. colors, Chris. You got the best <laughs> colors. I, I remember being in that arena. That orange got my attention, man. And uh, Rod <laughs> Grizzard and all different kind of kids. Albert, uh, Bernard King, Ernie Grunfeld are both guys that I, I got to be very friendly with. I love Tennessee. But you know, you know from seeing it. Um, it's just real. When it, when it comes down to it, Hunter, I think of your dad. Like, honestly, do you really think there's any coach that surpasses your dad in terms of humility, know-how, success? You know, all of it, just real, genuine. He treats everybody, you know, as somebody that's past significant. And uh, so he's got it right. Just because you wear a shirt and tie and you're on national television uh, doesn't mean that, and you're coaching, doesn't mean you're a great coach. You know, the <laughs> doesn't mean you're a great coach. Just means you happen to be a famous coach. And like I said, I don't know, I don't know what all that means. You know, I, I don't look, I, I, I respect the Kardashians, right? They created a, a show and everything, but I still don't know what it is they're great for. You know, not to say anything bad. I'm just saying I just don't know them. You know, but when you get a chance to know people, to really, you know, spend time with them, that's when you find out if they're great. Kardashians may be great. But to me, you know, what are you great for? You know, I know that the people that helped raise me, the people that I've coached with, the, you know, you guys that are interviewing me, especially you, Hunter, I know what that greatness is. That's real greatness. And uh, trust me, when you're on an operating table going in to have open heart surgery and they're going to cut you open and, you know, you know, there's some question marks whether or not uh, you come out the other end of this, it's not like I'm busy thinking about uh, anybody, uh, any any fame, any anything that's uh, – meeting somebody that's successful at something. I, I'm thinking of all the great people that watered my life and praying to the God that, that I know and serve, that he might extend my life so I could be around my beautiful wife and son for a little more time. So that's just the truth about, that I'm trying to relate. <laughs> Make sure you edit this stuff. <laughs> Coach, this has been fantastic. Um, we thought this would be a cool way to close. Um, mm -hmm. And I've heard you share this story in speaking engagements before, but we thought it'd be cool if you could share the story um, about the football player that played for Coach Bryant at Alabama. Yes. Yeah. Finish our time. 
Yeah, I, I heard this story a, a time ago, and uh, and you know I don't know, uh, you know, I, you know I've, I've always trusted it's valid because certainly I know it's um, that there's even greater stories that your dad could tell. Uh, but the theme of the story goes like this, man. It's pretty, I think it's very powerful. Uh, obviously, Bear Bryant was a unique coach. Uh, the Junction Boys and uh, somebody that uh, that changed football and uh, was truly, you know, I don't, I know people call it old school. I, I would call it only school. Um, he's like the, you know, I don't know that people give Bobby Knight enough credit. They try to look for his foibles and the things they want to label as glamorize is wrong and, and they don't talk about his graduation rates and the discipline that he taught disciplines basically uh teaching somebody to be disciplined is is giving them the tools to fight temptation um and that's what that's really you know that's to me who alabama's football coach you know was and uh so what he did was it was an athlete that came up to him and uh they were playing auburn on a saturday and the athlete came up and was a running back, and uh, he was a senior. And walks into coach's office, Coach Brian. I, you know, got to tell you, my my dad passed away this past Wednesday, and I, I got to go home. And right away, Ben Brown was up out of his desk, over to the kid, and talking to him, and making arrangements, and and letting him know, hey, son, we're there for you. This is, you know, we're a family here, and we want to make sure that everything's okay. We'll do everything. We'll get it squared away. You get home. And don't you worry about a thing. You know, you take care of your family at home. And, and he was just great. It was just outstanding what he did to the kid. And a couple of days go by. Now it's, uh, you know, Saturday. It's uh, Saturday morning. They play Saturday afternoon. And Auburn, I guess, is like, you know, their biggest rival, one of their biggest rivals. And kid shows up at the, you know, at, at his office again early. And Coach Bryant's looking at me and said, what, what, what are you doing here? You know, you got to be home, man. You get a check. And he goes, no, Coach, uh, I thought about it. He goes, uh, Coach, uh, I need to play. Uh, I need to be here and, you know, be on the team and be here for this game. And he goes, Coach, you know, you got to understand, Coach, I, my mom wouldn't want me. My dad wouldn't want me. I know they, he would want me to be here. And so Bryant's looking at him, you know, says, oh. Okay, son. You know, and he tried to convince him otherwise, but he couldn't. He goes, "There's one other thing, coach. You gotta start me." And this is Paul Bear Bryant. <laughs> Just try to. I don't know. I, don't, I could put in the symbol what I know about football, but like I said, coaching isn't about the the sport. I'm just imagining he's like Bobby Knight. That's like telling Bobby Knight, "Listen, what you got to do." Or Kim Mulkey, "This is what you got to do." Um, and right away. You know, Bryant very kindly and looked at him and said, son, listen, you know, understand you got a lot of things on your mind and it's just tough. He goes, but to be honest with you, son, I mean, you know, you've been a disappointment here at this school. I expected more from you. He goes, uh, you, you, you know, starting you is, and then the kid interrupts him because no coach, you got to understand. You got to start me. And Bryant looked at him, and this is Paul Bear Bryant. He said, okay, son, I'm going to start you. Made a decision to start the kid. Gut instincts, nonverbal experience, all the things that go into being a real coach. Obviously, Bryant knew something. Game starts. By halftime, 
Auburn is getting trounced by four touchdowns, and the young man has all four. He's a running back. They're in the locker room, and I've never been in a in a locker room, you know, at halftime or at the end of a game at major college football. But I have been in their practices and, and have seen things with, like, Steve Spurry and a number of great coaches. I can't imagine what it was like in that locker room. But they, I heard they were going nuts. and. Basically, Brian, you know, they're cheering and getting themselves excited. He settles everybody down to get ready for that second half. And he's looking at the young man. He goes, man, I don't know whether to kiss you or knock you out. He goes, what's got into you? And he says, uh, coach, he goes, uh, you remember seeing me and my dad, you know, on Sundays walking around campus, sometimes holding hands? and Brian thinks back and he goes, and he's feeling bad. He's thinking, dang, I slipped my mind about this whole thing. You know, this kid, this kid's really hurting right now. So he just looks at the beginning and he, and he, and he remembers. He goes, yeah, I've seen, I remember seeing you holding your dad's hand. Yeah, yeah, I have. And he goes, well, dad, you got to understand, coach, uh, my dad was blind. That's the first game he got to see. So it teaches emotional motivation. It teaches you know, what's your, where does your want come from? W-A-N-T. If your want is just about you, you will fail. If your want has to do with others, you will succeed. And I'm, I'm not just talking succeed. I'm talking off the chain succeed. Coach, I feel like I, I should have mentioned too, uh, Chris's dad worked for Coach Bryant. Are you kidding? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he was a student assistant wow. at, uh, in undergrad at Alabama. Wow. That's great to, to have a family, to have a heritage like that. And like I said, under your heritage, you know, and I'm blessed. I had the most unbelievable dad and mother that uh, I, I'm just blessed. Um, a lot of times people attack things, oftentimes when they don't have parents or somebody significant, and then life that could be parents, they attack things in the manner like, I'm going to prove people wrong. Um, you know, people that, you know, I, I just want to grab a hold of the people that have that great desire and they're saying, I want to prove people wrong and just let them know, you know something, man? Don't give them credit. <laughs> Don't give anybody that you think you're proving wrong credit. Think of all the people that you need to prove right because they believe in you. And all said and done, that's what, to me, this existence is all about, is, is belief. You know, you have, to, you have to find that of which makes the most sense to you to believe in. And, uh, and I really think you need to be about others. That's what coaching is. Uh, that's what this existence is. And I appreciate you guys having me on to talk about it. Coach, thanks so much for doing this. This was great. Man, love you guys. Chris, I can't wait to meet you face to face. Hunter, you're the best. And you're and listen, you were the second best horse player, I think, in all of Valley University. Coach <laughs> <laughs> Maloney, man, it's been awesome. I've enjoyed meeting you and uh, definitely want to meet face to face. Look forward to that a lot. Me too, brother. Thank you very, very much, guys. Love you guys. Love you too, Coach. Thank you so much for listening to the Coach and Doc podcast. Uh, we know there are a lot of podcasts out there, so we're grateful that you chose ours. 
If you'd like to learn more about the work that we do, please visit our website. It is at coachingdoc.com. Thanks again.